0: Tonight. Hey man, why don't you give the Lord a hand clap of praise anybody glad to be in the house of the Lord Amen. Hey man, why don't you shake your neighbor's hand and tell them it's good to see them in church Good to see him on a Monday night And um Man, what a great crowd on a Monday night. Why don't you give yourself a hand for being in church? You know, I hear a lot of negativity. Uh, People don't want to go to church anymore. You know, and that may be true in some cases. But I don't think that's true here. I think there's a group of people here that say, you know what, anytime the doors are open, I'm going to be there. You know, I'm a, I'm a believer, and, and this is not my sermon, but, you know, uh, as we get closer and closer to the coming of the Lord, it seems like people want to have less church. But Paul said, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, as you see that day approaching. Paul's saying, when you get closer and closer to the coming of the Lord, you don't need less church, you need more church. And uh, I want to be in the house of the Lord every chance I get. And I'm glad to see each and every one of you in the house of the Lord tonight. And I give honor to your pastor and your pastor's wife and all the ministry that's represented here. And uh, I give them honor for the great work that they're doing. And, um, you know, I just believe this is just the beginning. I mean, how, how long have you started the church, brother? Four years? This be our fifth year fifth, five years in November. And uh, look at what God has done in just under five years. Amen. I just love to see the kingdom of God grow. Amen. Ju- the book of Judges tonight, the book of Judges chapter number one. Judges chapter number one and we will begin at verse number one. And uh, I'm just going to do my best to impart into this church what I feel like the Lord has laid on my heart. So Judges chapter number one and verse number one. The Bible says now after the death of Joshua it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord saying who shall go up for us against the Canaanites first to fight against them. And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have delivered the land into his hand. And Judah said unto Simeon, his brother, come up with me into my lot, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I likewise will go with thee into thy lot. So Simeon went with him, and Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and Perizzites into their hand. And they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. And they found Adonai Bezek in Bezek. And they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and Perizzites. But Adonai Bezek, the king of the city of Bezek, the Bible says, fled. And they, speaking of Judah and Simeon, pursued after him. They caught him. And then the Bible says something very Interesting. They cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adonai Bezek said, This king who's just had his thumbs and toes cut off looks back at Judah and Simeon and says, Three score and ten kings, or seventy kings having their great toes and their thumbs cut off, gathered their meat under my table. As I have done, so God hath requited me they brought him to Jerusalem and there he died any honest people in the house that can admit and say I've read things in the Bible and when I got through reading it I had no idea what I just read now I'll be honest I, I had that same look some of you have right now when I first read this because we read about a battle and we read about two brothers going into that battle and we read about a king fleeing from that battle and we read about toes and thumbs being cut off and that king looks back at judah and simeon and says what you've done to me is the same thing i've done to other kings and god has just paid me back for what i've done but i feel like in these seven verses there is something god wants us to get a hold of and i'm going to do my best to deliver that this evening my, uh, my title will not make sense as we begin. But I hope for your sake and mine it will before we're finished. My message to you tonight is simply assassination by mutilation. Assassination by mutilation. If you want the Lord to talk to us, why don't you lift your hands one more time before we're seated. As you lift your hands, why don't you lift your voice right now and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts? In Jesus' name, let your spirit move in this In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Why don't you give the Lord one more great hand clap of praise? In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, and you may be seated. Thank you for standing. The Old Testament is a very unique covenant. It is comprised of 39 books, 929 chapters, 23,214 verses, and over 500 And 93,000 plus words. The New Testament consists of 27 books, 260 chapters, 7,959 verses, and over 181,000 plus words. And while these two testaments or these two covenants both fit and flow together, uh, the truth is if you begin to compare how things were done in the Old Testament uh, to how they were done in the New Testament more times than not, It would seem that these two covenants, these two testaments, couldn't be more opposite than the other. And what I mean by that is that Old Testament, when you begin to read it, can at times be cruel and it can at times be ruthless because it is a testament that is so in your face. And it's so full of violence that it will leave the casual reader scratching their head because it offers little to no apologies. But everything will take a turn when the New Testament becomes rolling along because this is a covenant that is about love and showing compassion. It's where we read of such things as love your neighbor as yourself, forgive your brother 70 times 7, turn the other cheek, and the list goes on and on. But we must understand this evening that in the Old Testament, in the days of that first covenant, it was literally an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Because in the days of that first covenant, it was a time of war. It was a time when much blood was shed on various battlegrounds. And in those days, ladies and gentlemen, mutilation was a very common concept in ancient warfare. In fact, some it was so common that some of these acts of mutilation find themselves woven in the fabric of Old Testament scripture. The Bible will tell us about a day when the Philistines captured that man, Samson. And we read of how the Philistines, after they captured that man, they pluck out the eyes of Samson and then they place him in a grinder. We then read about how a man by the name of Nahash had encamped himself against Jabesh-Gilead and the people come begging to make a covenant with this man that would spare their life. And the Bible says Nahash agrees only if they allow him to pluck or to rip out their right eye it was Samuel the prophet who tells Saul the king to utterly destroy the Amalekites even kill Agag their king the prophet tells the king I want you to leave nothing alive but we understand Saul compromises and he spares the best things he even leaves Agag the king alive and the prophet the bible says becomes so indignant in his spirit that he pulls a sword out from his side, and he hews or cuts Agag to pieces. It was then we read of how David, the Bible says, received news that Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, had been killed, and so in retaliation, David takes the men responsible for his death, and David commands his men to cut off their hands and to cut off their feet, and then they hang their bodies in the trees over the pool of Hebron. Ladies and gentlemen, I set off of that to say this, and that is, as we begin the sermon this evening, we must understand that mutilation was not something foreign to their mind, but it was something that their minds were very accustomed to. But it's, in my opinion, the most interesting act of mutilation can be found in the text we read a few moments ago, because we pick up what the Bible tells us that Joshua has died, and because Joshua has died, Israel finds themselves in a precarious place. They find themselves leaderless. And so they go to the Lord asking, who's going to stand in the gap and fight for us? Who's going to be the representative for the nation of Israel? And we find that the Lord responds to the nation of Israel and says, Judah's going to go up and fight for you. And so when Judah receives the news, he goes to his brother Simeon and says, if you'll stand with me, if you'll fight with me in my lot, then I'll return the favor down the road and fight for you and your lot and so watch this the Bible says uh, these two brothers Judah and Simeon uh, go walking into enemy territory uh, and it's there in a city called Bezek uh, where a battle begins to unfold Uh, the Lord begins to deliver the Canaanites uh, and the Perizzites into their hand uh, because 10,000 men fall uh, at the edge of their sword Uh, but hang on to me because this is where the story gets interesting uh, because while in the Midst of the battle, they discover the king of that city, a man by the name of Adonai Bezek. And the scripture lets us know him the king, surveys the loss that he has sustained. He begins to run from the battle, but Judah and Simeon chase after him. And once they catch him, the Bible says that they cut off his thumbs and they cut off his toes. And this king lying on the ground bleeding from his hands and from his feet this king ladies and gentlemen he's just been mutilated but what's interesting is his response to the mutilation because when Judah and Simeon cut off his thumbs and toes he does not cry out for revenge he does not cry out for retribution but he looks at those brothers and says what you've done to my thumbs and toes is justified because I myself mutilated seven I took their toes and I took their thumbs and placed them under my table of authority. Now, while you and I sit in this room tonight and we read stories like this and we looked at it as inhumane, we looked at it as some heinous act of violence, ladies and gentlemen, can I submit to you that this was not the case if you lived in that day. In fact, you wouldn't have thought twice about it because that's how common mutilation was. When you begin to dig into ancient warfare, especially in Old Testament times, you would be quick to realize that when kings would invade neighboring cities or territories, after the war had been fought and after the war had been won, these kings many times would take prisoners of that war. But instead of killing the POWs, they would simply mutilate their hands and their feet. They would cut off the POWs thumbs and toes. In fact, I have read that the ultimate punishment a soldier could receive and the ultimate shame a soldier could feel was in fact having their thumbs and toes mutilated, and to add insult to injury after this had occurred, they no longer held you as their prisoner, but they then released you as a free man. You gotta understand they'd done so because after they had mutilated your hands and feet, those kings no longer looked at you as a viable threat. Somehow kings realize that if I can take your thumbs and toes, I am eliminating your ability to pose a threat to me and to my kingdom. And if you and I were to walk down the halls of history tonight, more than seeing the lifeless bodies as they litter a battlefield, can I tell you we would see men with bandaged hands and bandaged feet, men who once fought, men who once served, men who once had a purpose, but because they had been mutilated. They had been rendered useless because we understand if you have no thumb, you cannot hold a sword. If you have no toe, you cannot walk, much less fight. So this became the common practice through the land. Kings realized we don't have to kill the POWs. We'll just mutilate the POWs. And when mutilation had occurred, you had become an ex-soldier. You had became handicapped. You became ineffective, unable to do What you once were able to do, ladies and gentlemen, even though they were still alive, they had been assassinated by mutilation. And I know what you're thinking right now. What in the world? Does mutilated thumbs and mutilated toes have to do with us tonight? What does mutilated thumbs and toes have to do with the church? What is the spiritual concept we can glean from a story like this? Well, what's amazing to me, ladies and gentlemen, is when you begin to study that same Old Testament, you would be quick to realize that thumbs and toes are mentioned elsewhere in your Bible. It is in the book of Leviticus chapter 14 where we see Aaron and his sons as they enter into the priesthood. And the Bible says in Leviticus 14, and the oil that is in his right hand shall the priest put upon the thumb of his right hand and upon the toe of his right foot. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to understand it is symbolic that God's anointing and authority flows in the priest. It meant that God's power resided within that office and it was their right thumb and their right toe that was anointed And that's amazing to know because in your Bible, the right side, the right hand represents power and authority. And the oil was placed on the right hand. And the oil was placed on the right foot of the priest. And I've come to tell this congregation uh, that by the priest having his right hand uh, and right foot anointed, uh, it was not a coincidence uh, because the oil, uh, the anointing, uh, was placed on the side of power. uh, And I've come to remind this congregation, uh, it is the oil, uh, it is the anointing of the Holy Ghost uh, that is the church's most powerful element uh, we've got access to. Uh, I've come to preach about an anointing tonight. Uh, I've come to remind this church uh, that God left us the anointing because it's powerful, because it has authority. Thank God for the anointing. Ah, but watch this. Could it be that by Adonai Bezek cutting off the thumbs and toes of those 70 kings Could it be symbolic of what hell desires to do to the church in 2022? Can it be the very thing that hell is after? Could it be the very thing hell wants to eliminate from the church is the very thing that flowed down those Old Testament priests? If I've come to learn anything about hell, I've come to learn that if there's one thing hell hates, he hates the anointing that flows in our services. And so it is the anointing. It has become the one thing. Hell wants to mutilate. Can I tell this congregation hell wants to assassinate the anointing because the anointing has always made the difference. It is in the book of Exodus chapter 40 where God begins to speak to Moses, pastor. Pastor. And God tells Moses, Moses, I've got something I need you to do for me. He said, Moses, uh, I want you to take that anointing oil, uh, and I want you to walk in the tabernacle, uh, symbolic of church. He said, Moses, uh, you take that oil, uh, and you anoint everything inside that tabernacle. uh, And so Moses takes that oil in his hands, uh, and your Bible says he anoints the altar. uh, He anoints the laver. He anoints the vessels. Uh, Moses walks through the house of God, uh, pouring oil on everything in the house uh, and I've come to rise and tell this church uh, that if the oil touched it then uh, the oil's got to touch it today uh, every part of our church uh, has got to have the oil uh, can I tell you uh, our platform needs to be anointed uh, our pews need to be anointed uh, our altar needs to be anointed uh, if the oil touched it then uh, it's got to touch it today So Moses is walking through the house. Moses is pouring oil and everything in God's house. And I find it interesting that after Moses anoints the tabernacle, it then says that Moses reared or Moses raised up the tabernacle. It's almost like God was telling Moses that what's in the house will not matter if the oil hasn't touched it first. I don't want to be misunderstood, and I don't think I will be. I thank God for our beautiful buildings. I thank God for the properties he's blessed the apostolic church with. I think we ought to have the best campus known to man. But can I tell you, if the oil's not flowing in that house, it's just a building. Can I tell you, if the oil's not flowing in the church, uh, it's just a gathering, uh, it's just a country club, uh, but give me the oil, uh, give me that same anointing uh, that Moses placed in the tabernacle then. I've come to tell this congregation, uh, if we need anything in these last days, uh, we've got to have the anointing. And because of that very important principle, I believe hell is after every element of the church that God has anointed. Can I just tell you what hell's after? He's after that anointing oil because he doesn't want the anointing to flow in this church. He doesn't want the anointing to flow when you play your music, your instrument. He doesn't want the anointing to flow when you sing. He doesn't want the anointing to flow when you praise and worship. He doesn't want the anointing to flow when your pastor preaches or somebody teaches. Can I tell somebody there is an assassin loose on this world and he's after one thing? He's after the anointing because hell understands he's no match for that anointing it's amazing to know that Adonibezek's name literally means the lord of lightning and there's commentaries that have come to refer to this man as an old testament type of the devil himself it's amazing we got types and shadows in the old testament about jesus But some people think that this man Adonai Bezek is type and shadow of the devil that the church has to fight today. His name means Lord of lightning. And it was Jesus himself who said, Behold, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And if there's one thing hell is after, hell is after the oil that has been placed in the church. Can I tell you that hell hates the anointing? Because he once was anointed. You see, before he fell, we know him now as Satan or the devil or the dragon or the snake or the serpent. But can I tell you, before he fell, he was known as Lucifer or the son of morning. Understand the Bible says that Lucifer was the light bearer in heaven because God is light. Lucifer bore the light of God. He allowed the light of God to shine through him. He was the light bearer. And Lucifer, before his fall, was perfect in every way. From his intelligence to his physical appearance, this entity, Lucifer, was second only to God himself. We've got Michael the archangel, Gabriel the messenger, and the Bible says we've got Lucifer, whom is also called the anointed cherub that covereth. You know what's amazing about Lucifer? He's the only angel in your Bible that's ever called anointed. Gabriel was never called anointed and Michael was never called anointed but Lucifer the devil that we fight against now was once called the anointed cherub that covereth he stood at the throne of God he protected God's holiness he protected God's worship but we understand he was able to walk in an anointing that no other angel is privileged to walk in but we also understand that pride enters the equation and God strips him of his anointing and can I tell this congregation that's why the devil despises the oil like he does. It's because he knows better than anybody else how powerful the anointing is and he does not want you to have the anointing that he lost. See, when Jesus appears in the New Testament, he's called the Son of God or the manifestation of God. Other places he's called Son of Man which spoke to his humanity. There's other places where they called him Lord. But there was one title given to Jesus more than others. And I'm afraid we have become so familiar with it in the church that we miss out on the revelation God wants us to have. It's when he's called the Christ. And I'm afraid we miss it, ladies and gentlemen, because Christ is so often used in conjunction with Jesus that we just think it's his last name. But can I tell you, Christ was not his last name. And Christ was not some secondary name tagged on with Jesus. If we were speaking in those terms, he would have been called Jesus Bar-Joseph or Jesus Son of Joseph. But aren't you thankful you've got the revelation that Jesus didn't have an earthly father? You see, Jesus was his name given to Joseph, which means Jehovah has become our salvation. But Christ was his name given as an affirmation. He is who he says he is. Jesus means Jehovah has become our salvation. But Christ is a word that literally means Messiah. And when you translate that word, it means the anointed one. And so, ladies and gentlemen, when you say Jesus Christ, you're not saying God's first and last name. You're saying Jesus, Jehovah, the Anointed One. That's why when Jesus is born, wise men bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now that's interesting gifts to bring a baby. I mean, I'd like the gold part, (laughs) but frankincense and myrrh to a baby—it seems odd until you realize that myrrh was a substance used uh, when they begin to mix that oil in the Old Testament. Uh, and when they brought myrrh to Jesus when he was born, uh, it was a prophetic foreshadowing of the anointing he was later going to walk in. Uh, this is why the Bible says there's a woman named Mary Magdalene uh, who breaks into the house of Lazarus, uh, interrupts the dinner, uh, and the Bible says she anoints the feet of Jesus uh, because he was about to walk in that anointing. Uh, this is why when Jesus begins his ministry, uh, He quotes the prophet Isaiah by saying that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel. He's anointed me to heal the brokenhearted. He's anointed me to preach deliverance to the captive, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. He was Jesus Christ. He was Jehovah, the anointed one. You see... Lucifer once was anointed, but because he didn't handle it properly, God said, I'm going to take the anointing that I gave you, and I'm going to put the anointing on myself, and I'm going to walk in that earth, and that's why everywhere Jesus went, the supernatural followed. Everywhere Jesus went, blinded eyes were opened, and lepers were cleansed, and the dead were raised, and demons were cast out, because if this oil ever gets loose, the oil ever starts to flow the supernatural and the miraculous will always follow and hell hates the anointing because he knows better than anybody else how powerful it is he doesn't want you or this church to walk in the anointing that he lost isn't it amazing when Jesus is born The Bible says when Herod hears that Jesus has been born, you can go read this for yourself in Matthew. I think it's the second chapter. When Herod hears that Jesus has been born, this Jewish baby, Herod sends out the decree, I want you to tell me where he's at. But what's even more amazing is Herod is the first person in your Bible to call Jesus the Christ. He said, you tell me where the Christ has been laid. In other words, Herod was saying, you tell me where the anointing is because Herod is a pawn of hell. And Herod understands. They just think that's a Jewish baby in a manger. But Herod understood who that baby is. He knew that was the Jehovah God robed in flesh. He understood that was the anointed one who would come to this earth. And that's why Herod said, I want you to kill every male child two years and under. You know what Herod was trying to do? He was trying to find and kill the anointing before the anointing ever matured. Tell me where the anointing is so I can go find him and kill him. He was willing to cause a genocide if he could find that one person who was anointed. He wasn't afraid of some two-year-old Jesus in a manger. Herod was afraid of a 30-year-old Jesus who is going to walk in the fulfillment of his anointing and turn his world upside down. Can I tell people in this room, could it be that hell sees anointing inside of us before we ever are aware that it's there? could it be that's why hell begins to fight uh, and that's why hell begins to attack uh, and that's why hell throws us in the midst of a battle uh, and so many times we wonder uh, why is hell attacking me uh, why is hell fighting me uh, why is hell coming against the church so much Uh, could it be ladies and gentlemen uh, that hell sees something inside of us uh, that we are not even aware of exists yet Uh, could there be anointings in this house Uh, could there be an anointing for this church uh, just around the corner uh, that you're about to walk in uh, and hell under understands. I've got to try to destroy them now because if they ever walk in the fulfillment of that anointing, I'll never be able to stop them. And so hell knows. I've got to kill the anointing today. Ah, there's people in this room tonight. Uh, If you could see what God wants you to be doing this time next year, uh, it would blow some of your minds. Uh, But let me help you out. Uh, That's why hell's fighting some of you right now. Uh, That's why the devil's attacking some of you. It's because hell sees potential, uh, and hell sees a calling, uh, and hell sees greatness. uh, And you may not see it yet, uh, but that's why hell is attacking. Uh, He's trying to kill the oil now. Because hell knows if that oil ever matures feel my Holy Ghost right now. I'm preaching to people in this room. There's infant anointing sitting on these pews right now. There's some baby anointing on this pew. There's some infant anointing. But can I tell you, hell is scared of you now because he won't be able to handle you tomorrow. And that's why hell wants to kill you now. That's why hell's trying to destroy now because just around the corner, just a few more days, you're about to walk in the fulfillment. You think hell's going to sit by and let you grow this church without resistance? You think hell's going to be propped up in the lazy boy with his feet up in the recliner uh, and say, well, just let him be. Uh, Can I I serve notice? Can I tell you reality right now? Uh, You better buckle up. Uh, Hell's about to fight, and hell's fighting right now. Uh, And that's why hell is attacking, uh, because he knows uh, if they ever stretch, uh, if they ever just extend themselves from where they are, uh, I cannot handle them. Uh, I won't be able to stop them. Uh, And so hell's trying to kill it now. Oh, and there's people in this church. Hell's trying to get you so discouraged now. Trying to tell you to quit the church now. Yeah, I feel where you are right now. He's trying to tell some of you, well, they don't even care about you. You might as well just stay home. It ain't no point of going to church. It's a Monday night. Why go to church? Can I tell somebody? Hell sees the potential in this building. And hell understands. If I don't kill them today, they're about to turn into something I can't handle. I wish somebody would hear me right now. There's an anointing. There's potential. There's a calling that God wants you to walk in. And that's why hell is attacking. He doesn't want you to walk in the anointing that he lost. See, God has left the anointing for us as the church to walk in. I'm preaching to people in this room. Hell doesn't want you to walk in that anointing. He doesn't want you to pray in that anointing. He doesn't want you to worship in that anointing. He doesn't want you to pray in that anointing. He doesn't want you to flow in that anointing. Who knows the anointing better? than the first one to ever be anointed. See, you got to understand Lucifer. See, in order to, they, they always say in order to win a battle, you've got to know your enemy. And you better know your enemy this evening. Do you understand that Lucifer was a priest before there ever was an Old Testament priest? Let me, let, me, let me deal, let me mess with some of your theology right now. Ezekiel 28 tells us about Lucifer before he fell. The Bible says every precious stone was upon him when God created him. Lucifer was a light bearer. He was called the light bearer because when God created him, God put every precious stone upon him. And because stones reflect light, He's called the light bearer. Ezekiel tells us that the sardis, the topaz, and the diamond were put on him. The beryl, the onyx, and the jasper. The sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle, and the gold. These were the ten stones God placed on Lucifer when God created Lucifer. Now that's interesting to know. Because go to the book of Exodus. When God calls Aaron and his sons into the priesthood. And when you're, you're able to realize that when the priest stood in the presence of God, they could not stand in his presence naked, meaning they had to be covered with a breastplate. I said all of that because all ten stones that Lucifer once had are the same ten stones that God gives the Old Testament priests. But Lucifer had ten. The priest had twelve. And there's a lot of debate and there's a lot of commentary on what those two extra stones mean. But can I tell you, this is just what I think God was saying in the most simplistic terms. I think God was telling Lucifer that when I created you, I gave you those ten stones. Those ten stones that made up your anointing. But when God called the priest into the holy of holies, when God called the office of the priest in the nation of Israel, God said, I'm going to give you the ten stones that Lucifer had, but I'm going to take it a step forward. And I'm going to go a little bit further uh, because you're not just getting the 10 stones that he had. uh, I'm going to give you two more stones uh, that he never had. Uh, I think God was telling the priest uh, and God was telling the devil uh, that my Old Testament priests uh, are going to walk in a greater anointing uh, than you ever walk in. Uh, And can I tell this congregation uh, that is important to us because the New Testament says when you get the Holy Ghost, we have become a royal priesthood. And everything, all those 12 stones that the priests wore in their garment are the same 12 stones God gives us in the Spirit. When we get the Holy Ghost, can I tell somebody in this room, when you get the Holy Ghost, God gives you an anointing. When you get God's Spirit, God deposits something inside of you that only you can fulfill. You now have more than he ever had because we have become a royal priesthood. Let me help somebody right here. The anointing, ladies and gentlemen, is supposed to go further than just the platform. (laughs) See, if we're not careful, we can come to church and say, well, pastor's anointed. Musicians are anointed, singers are anointed. But I, I just sit on the pew and take up space. See, God's anointing, the real anointing, is supposed to get in the body. I've got an uncle. And let me preface the story by saying this He's not a preacher at all, he's not a Sunday school teacher. He's not in leadership. In fact, my uncle's the kind of guy that if you tried to give him a microphone in front of people, he would just kindly give it back to you and go sit on the back row because he's never had that desire to be out in front. I'm going to help somebody right now. He's never taught a class. He's never preached a sermon. He's not in leadership. But every year or every day, he would always go to the church and pray his hour before he would go home after work. Every year, every, every day. He'd done it for years. Now, I remember one year at Christmas time, they began to talk about this story. How my uncle, it didn't matter how long he worked, how tired he was. Before he would go home and shower and have supper, he would go to the church and pray his hour every day. He's not a preacher. He doesn't teach a Sunday school class. He's not in leadership. He's just faithful. And he does it for years. They begin to tell one Friday. It had been a long week. They had worked a lot of overtime that week. And he worked in a furniture factory. And I'd done it for seven years before I went full time. And I know how long those days are. And they said he had worked a lot of overtime. And in fact, he had worked about two or three hours over that Friday. And if there was ever a day to skip going to church to pray, it would have probably been that day. He's had to work all these extra hours. It's later than normal on a Friday. But my uncle was faithful and he went to the church. They said he walked in the back of the church. There's two aisles, kind of like this one. There's a middle aisle going right down both sides. And they said the church was dimly lit. Said he began to walk about middle ways up to the church to go to his one spot he's always prayed at for years. When they said all of a sudden he looks up and there's two angels sitting in that spot he's prayed at for years. My uncle's never seen anything like that, so he just kind of freezes. Doesn't know whether to stand there and watch or run out the back door scared to death. But he begins to watch these two angels almost like they're talking back and forth. And he said, he'll never forget that one of those angels begin to point at his wrist, like pointing at a clock or a watch, almost asking the other angel, where's he at? He's usually here by now. When all of a sudden the other angel looks up and sees my uncle standing in the middle of the aisle, And he looks at the other angel and begins to shake his head and point to the clock in the back on the wall. Almost saying, yeah, I know he's late, but I knew he'd be here. And at this moment, he's officially freaked out. Runs out the back door. Calls his pastor and says, tells him everything going on. The pastor said, son, if God lets you see that, something is trying to happen right now in your life. You need to get back in there. Find out what's going on. So he did. He walked back in the church, this time a lot slower and more cautious than he did the first time. He said he peeked around the corner, and sure enough, they were still sitting there. He said he began to walk up the middle aisle. Brother Biddle, he said when he took that first step in that altar area, said the presence of God almost just took him to the ground. He said there was a presence that sat on his shoulders that he had never felt in his life and he said tears began to flow and he said he took another step and he said God's presence began to fall even heavier on his shoulders Uh, he said he took about three or four steps toward that area where he's always prayed at uh, until God's presence was so heavy uh, that he laid face first on that floor for about two hours Uh, and he said all I could do was weep and all I could do was cry he said the presence of God was almost tangible you could touch it, it was so thick Uh, and he said after about two hours of weeping and crying uh, couldn't even say a word because God's presence was so surreal Uh, He said, from the darkness of that sanctuary, uh, God spoke to him. Uh, He said, the first time he'd ever heard God's voice, uh, years of praying, uh, years of being faithful, uh, years of fasting, uh, not a preacher, uh, not in leadership. uh, He said, but the voice of God spoke to him that night uh, and said, son, uh, because of your faithfulness uh, and because of your willingness to do whatever your pastors ask you to do, uh, he said, son, from this day going forward, uh, I'm putting in your hands the gift of healing uh, and you're gonna pray for people Uh, and I'm going to heal them. Uh, Can I tell this congregation uh, all these years later uh, when somebody needs a miracle, uh, yes, the ministry pray, uh, but there's a 55-year-old man that crawls out uh, and lays hands. Uh, Can I tell somebody, uh, you may not be a preacher, uh, you may not sing, uh, you may not be a Sunday school teacher, uh, but if you've got the Holy Ghost, uh, God has anointed you. There's something that God wants you to do. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthian church, the church, not leadership. He writes to the church, the body. And he says, It is God who has established us, it's God who has put his seal on us, and it's God who has anointed us. He's talking to the body, not leadership. He's saying if you're in the church, if you've been buried in Jesus' name, baptism, if you've got the Holy Ghost, God has put His establishment on you and God has put His seal in you and God's anointing flows inside of you. If you've got the Holy Ghost, ladies and gentlemen, there's an anointing that hell's afraid of. And hell's going to be nervous The day some of you wake up and realize just who you are. See, it's not God's will, Brother Biddle, and i got to hurry. But it's not God's will for us to come to church. He wants us to come to church. But it's not God's will for us just to come to church every Sunday and Tuesday and sit on a pew and be unfulfilled and be miserable and just feel like I'm taking up a place in the congregation. Can I tell people in this room, there's more for you to be in God's kingdom than just sitting on a pew. God's got something he wants you to do. I may get back to the sermon. I may not. I got to hurry, though. You can be seated if you want. You'd be surprised by the biddle of the people in our churches who do not know who they are in God. See, Jesus one day asked the question, "Whom do men say that I am?" Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. Whom do you say that I am? Peter lifts his hand and says, "Thou art the Christ. You're the Anointed One. You're Jehovah." And if we stop there, ladies and gentlemen, we have an incomplete revelation. See, it's possible to know all the one God scriptures. It's possible to know the mighty God in Christ and at the same time not know who you are in Christ. See, it's one thing to know that God robed himself in flesh to it. God was manifest in the flesh. But at the same time, not know where you fit in in God's plan. See, Peter tells Jesus, I know who you are. You're the Christ. But the conversation doesn't stop, ladies and gentlemen. Jesus looks at Peter and says, I'm glad you know who I am. Now let me tell you who you are. Thou art Peter, you're no longer Simon, you're no longer unstable. You're no longer just weak and frail, but you're Peter. And ladies and gentlemen, can I tell you the greatest revelation, the first greatest revelation you'll ever have in this life is knowing who Jesus is. Knowing that he is Jehovah God, the Father in the flesh. But can I tell you the second greatest revelation you'll ever get is knowing who you are when it comes to this church business. Knowing I'm more than just somebody who sits on a chair every Sunday and Tuesday. Knowing I'm more than just somebody who's counted on a roll every time I'm in church. And I'm going to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, hell fears the day when people in our churches wake up and realize who they are. You see, the first greatest day in anybody's life is the day they're born, the second greatest day in their life is the day they realize why they were born. And I'm talking to people in this house, you are going to be vital in this and you hear me in the Holy Ghost right now Uh, there's people in these pews right now in these chairs Uh, you are going to be vital in the hand of God uh, in this next phase of revival God's about to send to this church and this community Uh, but can I tell you that's why hell is attacking us uh, and that's why trail tries to make us feel so insignificant uh, and battle low self esteem Uh, well who am I I don't have the right last name Uh, my parents didn't go to church Uh, I don't come from a Pentecostal background Uh, can I tell you that's a lie from hell uh, because hell is afraid of who you are. Listen, if God loved you enough to give you the Holy Ghost, He loved you enough to anoint you. What is this anointing? And I gotta hurry. What, what, what is this anointing? It's amazing that when you begin to study the oil, it, it came from all things, the practice of shepherds. See, lice and insects begin to, would begin to get in the ears of the sheep and they would kill the sheep because of infection. And so shepherds come up with the idea, let's pour oil on the head of the sheep to make the wool slippery and so insects fall off. And so, because of that, the anointing became symbolic of protection, uh, blessing, and empowerment. Uh, We understand in ancient Israel, in the Old Testament, uh, when somebody was given a position of authority or called by God, uh, oil was always poured on their head. Now, you got to get this if you're going to get the rest of it. The oil, ladies and gentlemen, has a divine flow, it starts at the head. And flows to the body. That's why when Samuel anoints David to be king, he pours a horn of oil on his head. And David writes in Psalm 23, looking back at that very moment by saying, Thou anointest my head with oil. When Aaron the priest was anointed to become a priest, the Bible says the oil poured down his head and down his beard and onto his garments because the oil flows downward, not upward. It starts at the head and flows to the body. And the apostle Paul picks up on this in the New Testament. Because Paul begins to write to the church, us. And he calls us the body of Christ. The body of the anointed one. And Paul says Jesus is the head of the church. And because Jesus is the head, and because Jesus is the anointed one, the anointing starts with him. The anointing starts at the head. But because the oil has a divine flow, it doesn't stay at the head, but it begins to flow down to the body, which is the church. Can I tell this congregation uh, hell understands uh, that I cannot attack the head. The last time he attacked the head, uh, he got kicked out of heaven. Uh, So what does the devil do? Uh, He attacks the body. Uh, Because he's trying to disrupt the flow of oil from the head to the body. Because hell is smart enough to know uh, and the devil is smart enough to know uh, that if the oil ever gets from him to us, uh, there's no stopping what God is going to do through us. Uh, There's no stopping the revival. Uh, There's no stopping the harvest. Uh, There's no stopping the miracles and signs and wonders. Uh, Because if the oil ever gets from him to us, uh, hell's kingdom is in trouble. So he attacks the body that's why the thumbs and toes were part of the body that the priest had anointed because hell attacks the body that's why your Bible says that king Adonibezek cut off thumbs and toes of 70 other kings it's amazing that he didn't mutilate common men he didn't mutilate common soldiers The Bible says he mutilated kings. He attacked those who posed the greatest threat to his kingdom. That's why hell fights the hardest, whom he fears the most. If you're fighting hell tonight, don't think you're doing something wrong. Because hell's not fighting you if y'all are going in the same direction. You don't feel the resistance of the wind when you're going down wind. But when you're walking against the wind, that's when you feel resistance. And so if you're fighting hell, don't think you're doing something wrong. Take it as an affirmation. I must be doing something right. Because hell does not waste his time on people. And hell doesn't waste his time on churches who do not want to be anointed. That's why Acts chapter 12 says, Herod vexed certain of the church. That one word certain changes the entire meaning of that verse. If the Bible said Herod vexed the church, that would give me the understanding that hell attacks every church. If it said Herod attacked the church or vexed the church, that gives me the understanding that hell fights everybody. Hell attacks every church, but that's not what it says. The Bible said he vexed certain of the church. That's why he had already killed John, and he's about to kill Peter. Because hell doesn't waste his time on people who don't want to be anointed. Can I tell you, hell will not waste his time on a church if they don't want to be anointed and impact their world. But if you want to be a part of those certain people, if you want to be a part of that certain church that wants to be anointed and wants to be used, you better settle it tonight. He's going to vex and he's going to attack Give me five minutes and I'm done. This is what hell wants to do. He wants to do to us what Adonai Bezek done to those 70 kings. He wants to mutilate our hands and feet. He wants to assassinate the oil that God has placed in our lives. But here's the thing about hell. Here's the thing about that king, Brother Biddle. He mutilated those 70 kings, but he didn't kill them. He took their thumbs and toes and the Bible said he placed them under his table of authority. That tells me hell will let us come to church on Sunday and Tuesday. Hell will let us sing our songs and preach our sermons. Hell will let us have prayer meetings and even revival as long as he can take the one thing that matters. Can I tell this congregation without this we are no different from any other religion in the world. Because they can sing as good as we can. They can preach just as good as better than we can. But the one thing that makes the difference is when that oil starts to flow. See, our ability and our talent, our charisma doesn't intimidate hell. This is what makes him scared. Maybe that's why God told Moses, now that you've anointed my house, now you can raise up my house. If they just make their way to the keyboard, just just give me a keyboard player tonight if you would, if somebody could help me. I don't want to mess anything up. But watch this. 1 Chronicles 27 and I'm done. 1 Chronicles chapter 27. Take time to read it when you get time. 1 Chronicles chapter 27 verses 25 through 34 gives us a list of officers who served in David's court. You ever heard of David's mighty men? That's where you read about them. I mean, David had some bad dudes that fought beside him on a battlefield. He had men that would fight lions in a pit. He had men that the Bible said killed so many Philistines that they had to pry his hand off of his sword. David had some bad men, ladies and gentlemen, that fought with him on a battlefield. But watch this. In verse number 28 of 1 Chronicles 27, you and I are introduced to a man by the name of Joash. Joash served David, Joash served his king. But Joash didn't serve David by fighting on a battlefield. Joash didn't serve David by killing multitudes of people. But the Bible says David had this man named Joash in a very prominent place. No, it wasn't flashy. It didn't catch everybody's attention. But he served David in a dark, damp, deserted cellar. You see, Joash, ladies and gentlemen, was the keeper the cellars and inside of those cellars was the entire oil supply of Israel and it was Joash's job to protect the oil from thieves who would try to steal that oil from Israel they tell me that the cellars of oil Israel had would be equivalent to our Fort Knox because the more oil you had more value and power you had and there were enemies who understood that if I could just get that oil I'll cripple the entire nation of Israel you may ask the question why was the oil so important I'll tell you why if there was no oil there would be no meat offerings if there was no oil there would be no trespass offerings for sin If there was no oil, lepers could not be cleansed. If there was no oil, there could be no office of a priest. If there was no oil, there could be no bread on the table. If there was no oil, the candlestick and the tabernacle would not be lit. If this was gone, ladies and gentlemen, the entire economy of Israel would crumble. Tabernacle could not even function without this. And there's one man, one man who bears the responsibility of protecting that oil from the enemy. It's not a coincidence that his name is Joash either, because Joash in the Hebrew literally means the fire of Jehovah. And I think it was God's way of telling Israel and it's God's way of telling us that if you want my fire to fall, there better be some Joe ashes that protect the oil. And as we stand all over this house, I preached entirely too long and I apologize, but I wonder if we can lift our hands right now all over this room. And I feel the Holy Ghost calling some Ashes in this room right now you may have been in church 50 years or you may have been in church 5 minutes but I'm telling you there's some people in this house that God says the fire's about to fall on you my hand's about to rest upon you in a greater measure we've already got some people stand, stepping out right now does anybody else in the house want it? says the Holy Ghost is going to touch you tonight. Come on, why don't we, if you want it tonight, I'm not going to beg you, but if you want it, why don't you just step out of your seat and come around the altar right now. I feel spiritual attacks. I feel spiritual opposition against people in this congregation right now. And you hear me in the Holy Ghost, it's not by accident. Hell sees something inside of us that we may not even see ourselves yet. But I'm going to tell you, some of you are going to leave this house and you're never going to be the same. Not because of a preacher. But There's a God in this house who wants you to know I've got something great for you to do. All right now. I wonder where you're standing or where you're kneeling. I wonder if you could just reach for the Lord right now. Come on as he plays. We're just going to turn the rest of this service into a prayer meeting if that's alright. But I wonder if I've got some men and women. I wonder if I've got some young people. I wonder if I've got some elders. I wonder if I've got some Ashes in this house that says I'll protect the oil. Hikatalabo Come on, lift your voice right now. It's no time to be bashful. Come on, it's no time to be quiet. It's all right to lift your voice. Come on, lift your voice like a trumpet right now. Let the Holy Ghost birth something. God's got a purpose for your life. God's got something great He wants all of us to do. Every one of us fit perfectly in the kingdom of God. Come on, let's reach for him. Come on, if you're standing beside somebody praying, why don't you put a hand on their shoulder? Come on, why don't you join with somebody and pray with them right now? Come on, the Holy Ghost is wanting to birth an anointing in this room. You've been anointed, but God wants to birth a greater anointing.